If you're a worker or you're going to work it, we have a meeting, whether you're the children or the teen worker, we have a meeting um, this coming Saturday. I believe that's at 5 p.m., so you want to make sure you're there for that. And then we need help with the snacks, uh, the cookies, the brownies, the various things we'll give out to the kids. And there's a sign-up sheet in the lobby, so maybe you can't be here because of work, but you can bake uh, and drop that off. Please sign up for that in the lobby. All right, Revelation 5, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll read from verse 1 down through verse 6. I'll begin with verse 1. We'll read verses 2, 4, and 6 together uh, out loud. Uh, Verse 1, the Bible says, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. Together, verse 2. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor on earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah and root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. We're going to continue our Back to the Basics series this morning and studying the book of Revelation. The title of the sermon this morning is this, Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Let's pray. As we turn our attention on you, Jesus, who died for all, the um, the living Word of God, Lord, we want to take a moment and just recognize and realize how worthy you are of our worship. How worthy you are, Lord, to lead us, to guide us. So may we, this morning as we study the written word, glorify and honor and praise and worship the living word. Give us a sweet time this morning in your house. May your word resonate in our hearts. May we leave here changed by what we hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I pray that you'll be in attendance uh, over the next several Sunday mornings as we continue our study in sermons in the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation 1 begins by telling us that everyone that reads the book will be blessed. In fact, it's the only book in the Bible that offers that promise. So, Not only are we going to read it, but we're going to try our best to study it and understand it. Now, what is the book of Revelation? If you are a Spanish speaker, the name of the book of Revelation is Apocalypsis, or in English, Apocalypse. It is the study of the end, the end of the world, the end times, and uh, it is a prophecy about those end times. Now, Daniel foretold the events found in the book of Revelation, and so did many of the other Old Testament prophets. They talked about these events as well. 
And not only did uh, Daniel in the Old Testament prophets talk about it, but Jesus was uh, asked about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew chapter 24. And he gave us some insights to these events as well. Now, one of the things that helps solidify the book of Revelation as being accurate and something we can count on is that the events in Revelation uh, line up in great detail, line up with great exactness with the prophecy of Daniel. And you say, well, pastor, how does that validate the book of Revelation? Well, when a prophet predicts the very year that Jesus will die, some 500 years in advance, I'd say that gives him the credibility to talk about what's going to happen in the future. Last week, we began by looking at Daniel's 70-week prophecy. We said a week is a group of seven units, and the unit here was not days, but rather years. So Daniel was giving a prophecy of the uh, a future 490 uh, 90 years, 70 times 7, and that the first 69 had to do with a countdown to the cutting off of the Messiah. You can go back and study Daniel chapter 9 if you'd like help with that. And to the year that they, they began to settle back in Jerusalem, to the year that Jesus died was 483 Years. Daniel predicted the very year that Jesus would die. And we said that that 70th week, that 70th group of seven years uh, was separate from the first 69 and that there was a gap in time between the 69th year and the 70th year. And that gap in time is the church age, the church age. We said that the church age began with the ascension of Jesus there on the Mount of Olives and the church age will end with the ascension of the church in the rapture. Uh, and that is the next event on the prophetic calendar. That is the next event that we'll wait for. Now, many people mock Christians and they say, oh, you've been predicting this rapture for hundreds and thousands of years and it hasn't happened. And to them, I'd say, step back and study the Bible and you see that uh, eras in the Bible usually last a couple thousand years. And just uh, people have mocked uh, the Bible before because of dispensations. They'll continue to do that. And I've got to tell you that Jesus Christ is coming back in the clouds and to capture his church in the air. And it could happen at any moment. If you look at the events around us and you look at the political landscape and you understand that up against the, the book of Revelation and again the book of Daniel, it be, is becoming very apparent to me that the things that are necessary to be in place are beginning to fall in place for Jesus Christ to come back. Uh, it used to be people would mock the book of Revelation because there's a point where it talks about how that the two witnesses, we'll talk about this in another sermon, but the two witnesses uh, that preach against the Antichrist would be shot in the street and that the whole world would see them raised again from the dead. And people would say, how is the whole world going to see that? And then came along television cameras and TVs. And now we have smartphones. And even people in third world countries, they don't have a place to live, but they've got a smartphone. Now the book of Revelation seems to make a little bit more sense, doesn't it? People would say, oh, well, with the mark of the beast, you're, gonna, you're not going to be able to buy or get gain or, or, or things. How in the world is that going to work? Now we can put computer chips under people's hands and they can use that to make a, a purchase. You see how that technology is beginning to fall in place so that the events of Revelation can happen. These things were mocked by people for years, but God is not to be mocked. What God says is true. 
The book of Revelation is a powerful book, and the book of Revelation is validated because it lines up perfectly with so many other uh, books in the Bible, and uh, but yet goes into greater detail. So the focus of this week's sermon is on the one who is worthy to receive the praise of the redeemed and worthy uh, to pour out judgment on the rebellious and wicked. Now, please hear what I'm about to say. Because it's the crux of the sermon this morning. God is a passionate person. Either you're going to land under the passion of God's love or the passion of God's wrath. There is no middle ground. You must choose to submit your will and do it God's way. If you do that, boy, you will experience the full-blown love of God for all of eternity. Or you can reject that and push away. And I promise you, you will spend an eternity of regret wishing you had chosen God's love. You say, well, Pastor, I'll choose God's love later. And I will will parrot something Brother John said a few minutes ago. Don't wait to do the right thing. Today is better than tomorrow. The Bible says, behold, now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. Not even later today, right now. Uh, in a group, in a room this size, let me tell you what I found. We, we come to church and we assume that, you know, we've seen this person a thousand times, so they must be saved. I think we're going to get to heaven and be shocked at who is saved that we didn't think was saved. We're going to be shocked at who isn't saved that we thought was saved. Some of you playing games with Jesus. You like the feel of being in a church. You like the social aspect of it. You like getting dressed up and walking in and playing that part. Salvation isn't a game. Salvation isn't a social status with the people in your city. Salvation is writing your heart with God. Surrendering to Him. My friend, today you're going to see in great detail through the sermon, what it looks like to be on the right side of God's passion, what it looks like to be on the wrong side of God's passion. And as this study unfolds and as we get deeper in Revelation, you'll see in even greater depth what those things look like. Without further ado, let's, um, let's jump in this morning. I propose that Jesus is worthy of your worship. Oh, Yes. We're going to worship Him for all of eternity. And it will be very natural at that point. Why not start right now? Why not get in on the worshiping of Jesus now? Why wait till we get to heaven when we can begin right now worshiping Jesus for who He is? I propose that Jesus is not only worthy of our worship, but Jesus is worthy of our witness. He left us here to tell others about His love. And He left us here so that we can use the love of the Lamb of God to help others avoid the wrath of the Lamb of God. One day, everyone will fall either underneath the love of the Lamb, the love of the Lamb, or the wrath 
of the Lamb. It's our job to to convince, to conjole, to push, to compel, to encourage, to love, to show others uh, away from the wrath of God and to the love of God, which is available to every human being alive. We've been given this great responsibility of broadcasting His love. We've been given this great responsibility of broadcasting His forgiveness to a world that is under the condemnation of sin's curse. This morning, we're going to place our attention on the Lamb of Revelation who is worthy. Let's look closely at these three important thoughts. Number one, notice the worship of the Lamb. The worship of the Lamb. The book of, or the the Revelation chapter 5 follows the events of Revelation 4. In Revelation 4, the church is called up to heaven and the trumpet sounds and all of us are called up to heaven that are the church age saints and we'll be there. You say, well, pastor, what's going to happen when we get to heaven? Well, Revelation 5 uh, uh, begins to tell us that one of the first things that will happen when we get to heaven and one of the very first things that we'll do is we're going to worship the Lamb of God. We're going to worship the Lamb of God. You know, the truth is, if I were to die in some sort of a freak accident today and I were to uh, enter heaven unexpectedly, the very, very first thing that I would want to do is run to the very throne of Jesus and throw myself down in front of Him and just behold His face for a long, long, long time because He's the one that saved me. Boy, I'm just a wretched sinner like you. I'm not worthy of anything. Anything good that I am is only because of God's grace. We get to heaven. It's going to be full-blown worship. Revelation 5 explains what that is. By the way, before we get into this, let me just tell you what worship is and isn't. Worship isn't a shallow praise service where you close your eyes, raise your hands, and sweat a little bit. Now, can you praise God? Can you worship God in that setting? Maybe. Let me give you a definition for worship. Worship is realizing that God is everything, and I am nothing. I am nothing. Um, I'm for corporate worship. I'm more for private worship. By the way, the deeper your private worship is the more rich your corporate worship will be. The problem with a lot of Laodicean churches, we looked at Laodicea last week, the problem with a lot of Laodicean churches is people want to show up to a service that's full of emotion. They want to walk in dripping with the sinful actions of their week haven't confessed it, haven't talked to the Lord about it. They're just as carnal as the day is long. They want to walk in and hear a bunch of emotional music and raise their hand and close their eyes and praise the Lord. And by the way, raising your hands in holy worship, there's nothing wrong with that. If while these ladies were singing a few minutes ago, some of you would have raised your hand, that is totally biblical as long as you're doing it with a heart of worship toward God and not to get the attention of men. Saying amen during a song or during a sermon, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's a biblical practice as well. But people that walk into church and they want to worship that way and then walk out and they want to ignore the worship of God in their private life, that isn't really true worship. We must worship God and we must get to a place of humility. If God, I am a 
little speck of dust, nothing on the on the grand scheme of the timeline of your creation and, and who you are. And at any moment, you could reach down and flick me off and you'd be justified in doing it because I'm just a worthless sinner. The only thing worthy in me is the fact that you saved me and you redeemed me. And God, I am finite. I am limited. I am weak. And Lord, you are infinite and you are uh, uh, unlimited in every way. And Lord, you are strong. You are almighty. And God, I'm nothing and you are everything. When we get to that place on a regular basis, it doesn't have to feel emotional. But it needs to be real. It needs to be real. Here we find the saints of God worshiping Jesus in heaven. And this is going to be all of us who are saved one day. Let me quickly give you an A, B, C, and a D here. Notice letter A, because of who he is. Because of who he is. Now, um, a disclaimer here. I work very hard to come up with all of my own outlines and materials. I, don't, I do not pull my sermons down from the Internet or out of commentaries. Okay? You won't find my outline on the Internet unless someone took my outline and used it, which I don't think anybody does that. Now, with that said... The subpoints here under point one, I did get out of a commentary. But I want to make sure I give credit where credit's due. Okay? I don't borrow other people's materials, and when I do, I give them credit. This is Warren Wearsby's material, all right? The ABC and the D. Outside of that, the rest of it's uh, 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 my material, but it is God's material because it's the Word of God. Letter A, because of who He is. Now, Revelation chapter 5, look at verse number 5 there with me. It says, And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat on the throne. So picture this here. You have uh, the saints in heaven standing around and God is sitting on his throne and he's got a book. And in this book, it's written on both the inside and the outside. There's nowhere else to write anything else on this book uh, we read in Revelation 5. And he's holding the book out and on the back of the book, there are seven wax seals that are keeping it closed. And God on his throne cries out, who is worthy? Or an angel calls out, who is worthy to open the book? And they search through heaven, and they search on earth, and they search under the earth or in hell, and nobody is worthy to open the book. John is standing there with the saints, and John begins to weep, because no one's worthy to open this book. By the way, this book is the title deed to planet earth. angel reaches over and touches him and says, don't weep, don't weep, there's someone who's worthy. Well, who's worthy? Well, he is the Lion of Judah. Throw that next slide up there for me. The Lion of Judah. He is the Root of David. The Root of David. Put the next one up there as well. The Root of David. Now notice here, the description. This person who is worthy, he is the ferocious Lion of Judah. Notice the political power, the statement of political power. But not only is he the Lion of Judah, he is the Root of David. His pedigree, he is from a pedigree of a kingly throne. And so John begins to look around for this, this lion of Judah, this root of David. And who does he see walking toward the throne? He doesn't see a lion. He doesn't see a king. Rather, he sees a lamb. He sees the lamb. Put that next slide up there for me. He sees the lamb of God. 
as it had been slain. He sees a bloody lamb walking toward the throne of God to take this scroll. He sees his pain, his pain. You see, Jesus could be sitting up there embodied as the Lion of Judah, embodied as a kingly uh, uh, root of David, but instead Jesus goes to get that book from, uh, from the hand of God, God the Father, as a lamb. Why should we worship God? We should worship God because He's all-powerful. We should worship God because He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But we should worship God because not only is He powerful enough to be the King of the world, He's personal enough to come and die for our sins. Aren't you glad that He's not just some king that bops you over the head when you do wrong, but He's your Savior who loves you and died, has died for you? Why do we worship the Lamb? Letter A, because of who He is. Letter B, because of where He is. Because of where he is. Look at verse 6. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, this is the twenty and four elders, the twelve leaders of the Old Testament, the twelve leaders of the New Testament, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Why do we worship God? We worship God because of where He is. Where is He? Well, He's sitting on His throne. He's sitting on His throne. Notice His placement. What a profound thought that the God of all the world would humble Himself and become a man, dying for our sins. Rise from the dead, ascend to heaven, and then assume the throne. You know, God was already all-powerful. Jesus is already all-powerful without coming to earth. How much more impressive should he be to you and I? How much more of our worship should he garner? Because he left the throne, he came to earth, he became one of us, he died for our sins, he rose from the dead, he ascended back to heaven, and that God who died for me and for you, he is the one that is sitting on the throne because of where he is. But not notice not only his throne, but his visage. His visage. Notice there it said that uh, he had seven horns and seven eyes. That doesn't mean horns uh, like you think of them. A horn is a symbol of power. And uh, the seven eyes, these are symbolic. Seven is uh, the number of God. These are symbolic of the seven spirits of God mentioned in Isaiah that he sends throughout the earth. And I'd recommend, uh, we don't have time to cover everything this morning, I recommend you look up the seven spirits in Isaiah that he sends throughout the earth. And we see there that this is his priorities. The, his visage represents his priorities, and that is to care for the saints, to care for the church. Let her see, notice that we worship the Lamb because of what he does. Because of what he does. Look down at verse 8, Revelation 5. It says there, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps. This is beautiful here, and golden vials full of odors. What are these golden bowls or golden vials full of odors? Well, which are the prayers of the saints. Do you think your prayers don't matter? Your prayers are being collected into vials, test tubes, if you will, in heaven. God is, the elders and the beasts are going to open those, and that is going to be the sweet smell that goes into the nostrils of our God. Your prayers matter. Look at verse 9. 
And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by uh, the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Now, I want us to stop and think that these are just words on a page, but these aren't just words on a page. This is foretelling where you and I, if you're saved, this morning are going to be in what we're going to be doing. We're going to be there worshiping Him. Why? Because of what He does. Well, what does He do? Well, He redeems us. He redeems us. Notice His purchase. Let me take just a minute here and say that if you don't know for sure that you're going to heaven, or you are so arrogant enough to think that you're getting into heaven based on your behavior, my friend, the only people that will be present in heaven are the people who have humbled their hearts and allowed Jesus to purchase their souls. You see, He's worthy to purchase your soul because He lived a perfect life. He became your sin on the cross. Your sin and my sin killed the Son of God on the cross. But that's not the end of the story. You see, if my sin had killed Jesus and he'd stay dead, then he wouldn't be around to redeem me. But three days later, up from the grave, he arose. He defeated death. Now he wants to buy your soul with his blood. He wants to take his blood and wash away your sins. He wants to redeem you. He wants to buy you back. You all have probably heard the story about the little boy with the the, the sailboat that he built in school. He came home from school and he placed that little sailboat in the, in the water and uh, tied a string to it and got distracted, let go of the string, and down the river it went. And he lost his boat that he had built, spent weeks and weeks in art, uh, in, in art and crafts class in school building. And, and uh, the boat was gone and little, little, uh, the little eight-year-old boy was heartbroken. And one day, uh, while walking through town, he walked past a little store in town and he saw his boat in the window and he ran into the store and he said, uh, uh, that's my boat, sir, that's my boat. And the man said, no, sir, that's my boat. You see, this boat was brought in by a fisherman out at sea and he found it uh, in his net and he sold it to me and I paid for it and now I'm selling it. He said, young man, if you want this boat, you're going to have to buy this boat. And the young man said, but I'm the one that built the boat. The man said, I'm sorry, I paid for the boat. It's my boat. You want the boat. You're going to have to buy it from me. So the little boy started doing household chores and cutting the neighbor's lawns and earning enough money. And after weeks and weeks of working hard and and, uh, scraping together his dollars and his pennies, he walked back in the store and he laid the money down on the counter. And out with the boat he walked and he hugged that boat and he said, Boat, you are twice mine. I made you and then I bought you. You see, Jesus made you, then he lost you to sin. And then he came to earth and he died on the cross and he wants to buy you back. The difference is, my friend, you have a stubborn will you've got to put away. That boat didn't. You must say, Lord, I'm going to allow you to buy me back. I'm going to allow you to purchase me. Why are we worshiping Jesus? Because of what he does. Well, he's redeemed us, but also he's, he redefines us. He redefines us. Look back at uh, verse number 10 there. Toward the end of the verse it says, or actually just look at verse 10. And has made us 
unto our God, kings and priests. I was just a wretched sinner, lost and dying on my way to hell, unworthy of anything good, unworthy of total annihilation because of my sin. Jesus purchased me. And if that wasn't enough, He made me into a king and a priest. You say, well, you're the pastor. Of course you're a priest. No, no, no. He made you into a priest too. You see, you don't need somebody wearing a backwards collar to go to God on your behalf. You get to go to God on your own and talk to Him. Aren't you glad that He's redefined you? He's repurposed you. That is His prize. Why do we worship Jesus, letter D? Because of what He has. Because of what He has. Look at verse 11. It says, And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne of the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands. These are the saints, the church-age saints. Verse 11, saying with a loud voice, this will be us, this will be us one day. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Look here, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. We're going to be high-fiving each other. We're going to be seeing this in heaven. We're going to be loving on our Savior for all of eternity with these words. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I uh, saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped Him that liveth forever and ever. What does He have? He has power. What does He have? He has riches. What does He have? He has wisdom. He has strength. He has honor. He has glory. He has blessings. You notice there that seven items are listed that God has. My friend, we're going to spend eternity Worshipping our God. You worshipping Him now? Or are you running the rat, rat race of life? Running from here to there. Waking up at the last minute and, and, and then entertained in the evening and falling asleep with your cell phone by your side and, 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 and busy with kids and schools and PTA meetings and, and, and work and, and everything else you got going on. And, and you go through life, you go through your day and you turn around and outside of sitting through a church service, you've done nothing to worship God. And God is worthy of your worship in heaven. God is also worthy of your worship right now, today here on earth. We must make that choice. We're talking about worthy is the Lamb this morning. He is worthy of our worship. Notice number two, the wrath of the Lamb. We looked at the worship of the Lamb. Notice the wrath of the Lamb. Now, we're going to talk about the, the, the seven seal judgments here in just a moment. But there are people that might even be here this morning that say, who does Jesus think he is to pour out wrath on humanity? I thought that God was love. If God is love, what is he doing doing this that we're about to read? And I'd say this, that yes, God is love, but God is balanced. You see, when Jesus created the earth, and it was Jesus that created the earth, John 1, 1 through 3, reads much like Genesis 1, 1 through 3. And the reason is, is because John is validating Jesus as God in his book. 
John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the capital W, Word. Proper noun. The Word is a person. And the Word, or Jesus, was with God. And the Word, or Jesus, was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Listen to verse 3. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Now, all three uh, uh, members of the Trinity had a part in creation. But Jesus was involved in creating the earth. You know how Jesus created us as humanity? He created us sinless. He created us perfect. And then old Satan, who rebelled from God in heaven, came down to this earth and convinced Adam and Eve to sin. You know, God just kept his promise. He told Adam, he said, if you eat that fruit, you're going to put yourself under a curse. Under a death curse. Under a sin curse. And so we're living out that sin curse today. You know why it is, sir, that you lose your temper? Because you're under a sin curse. You know why it is, ma'am, that uh, you, you uh, run your mouth and gossip and chat about things you ought not uh, run your mouth and gossip and chat about? It, it's because you're under a sin curse. You know why we struggle with lying and lust and pride? Because we're all under a sin curse. And we can't totally help it. Now, we can ask God for his help as Christians. He can give us the victory over habitual sin, but we are under a sin curse that we as humanity have placed ourselves under. And God said, listen, I'm going to do something to uh, alleviate that sin curse. I'm going to do something to redeem and buy back my creation. I'm going to send out my only begotten son. I'm going to nail him up on a cross so that he can die for the sins of the world. I'm going to give them an option to choose my son so that they can be forgiven of their sin and given a home in heaven and be uh, uh, relieved or, or, or have that sin curse removed. And guess what? Humanity turns their nose up at God. They look at God and they say, I don't want your way. I don't want your way. I can't tell you how many times I've had someone sit in one of my offices through the years in ministry and I have given them the gospel and I have said, are you ready to accept Christ as your Savior? And they say, no. No. And the last time this happened was a couple of months back. And I looked at the young lady in my office. My wife was with me. I looked at the young lady and I said, what? I said, what's wrong with you? She looked at me all shocked. I said, the king of glory killed his son for all of your sins to give you the gift of eternal life. And you're swatting his hand away. I said, how arrogant of you to do that. She looked at me and she said, well, if my options are choose his gift or go to hell, I don't want either one. I want to do it my way. My blood was still boiling when I went to bed that night. The last words I said to my wife that night before I drifted off or she drifted off to sleep, I was awake a while later, was, I can't believe that just happened. Now, if you're God and you killed your son for all of humanity, and a portion of them thumbed their nose up at you, how would you feel? You think you'd be a little wrathful? We're going to look at the wrath of the Lamb. Look at Revelation 6.17. The Bible says, For the great day of His wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? You see... The clock is ticking on planet Earth. The day is going to come where this planet and its inhabitants are judged. Now, one more thing I want to say before we get into these seven seal judgments, and I'll be very, very brief with this. 
is that too much emphasis by Bible preachers and Bible teachers is put on the power of the Antichrist and, his, and, and Satan's false trinity. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Okay, we'll get more into this in a, in a f- future study. But Satan loves to counterfeit everything God does. So Satan has his false trinity. It's, he is Satan the Father. The Antichrist takes the place of God's Son. And there's a false prophet that takes the place of the Holy Spirit. So you have Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And Satan tries to replicate and duplicate everything that God does. And a lot of people study about the Antichrist. We'll talk about him a little bit today. We'll talk about him more in future weeks. And they want to talk about how powerful he is and how persuasive he is and all these things. But I just have to say that the Antichrist is nothing more in a tool than a tool in God's uh, toolbox that he is going to use to bring about his glory. And God is going to choose when the Antichrist begins his work. The Antichrist is not going to choose. So, number one, with that said, let's look at these seven uh, seals. Okay, before we get into them, real quick, right here. He walks over to the throne. He takes the title deed, the book, or probably a scroll, out of the hand of God. On the back of it, there are seven wax seals that have that sealed shut. And one at a time, he breaks those seals open. And with the breaking of each seal, another judgment is released on the earth. These are called the seven seal judgments. Seal judgment number one, notice the white horse, the white horse. And the white horse is, uh, tip, uh, uh, is, is uh, that of the Antichrist, the Antichrist. Now, uh, uh, um, let's see, Daniel 9 verse 27 tells us that this, uh, this white horse will be released, or rather the beginning of the tribulation will begin when the treaty is signed. When Jesus Christ in heaven, the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, breaks open that first seal, that will be at the moment that the Antichrist uh, is involved in getting this treaty signed between Israel and her enemies. Look at Revelation chapter 6 verse 1. And I saw the Lamb open one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow and a crown and uh, was given him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, many people will argue that this uh, white horse and the rider of this white horse is Jesus himself. Let me share with you a couple of thoughts on why I don't believe that is. First, notice the weapon described uh, in uh, Revelation 6 here is a bow, a bow. When Jesus comes back in Revelation 19 on his own white horse, his weapon of choice will be a sword. Totally different weapon. Also, if you look at Revelation chapter 6 verse 2, you see that this um, uh, person wearing uh, riding this horse is wearing a crown. The word for crown in the Greek here is the word stephanos, which means the victor's crown. In Revelation 19.12, when Jesus comes back uh, uh, for his second coming for the battle of Armageddon, he is wearing a crown, and the Greek word for crown there is the word diadem. Now, a uh, Stephanos crown is a victor crown. A diadem is a kingly crown. So Jesus won't need to be a victor. He already is the victor. And he is the king, the king of everyone. So his bow that he carries, uh, and, and so other thing I want you to notice here is that the Antichrist's bow has no arrows. Has no arrows. Now what is a bow without arrow? A bow without an arrow. 
You say, well, it's useless. Well, you have to understand that this is symbolic. The bow represents great power. This Antichrist will have great power, but he won't need to fire an arrow because he will be a great negotiator. He will be able to woo and wow people with his speeches and with his ability to negotiate. I mean, after all, he's going to be able to get the Muslims and the Jews to sit down and sign a peace treaty. He's going to be able to get the Dome of the Rock removed from the holy site and the temple built. How good of a negotiator would you have to be? Have you all watched to see how they have tried to negotiate? I mean, they'll sit down, the Muslims and the Jews, in the same room, and while they're signing on the dotted line, they're also firing uh, torpedoes and missiles at each other. There is no peace, and there hasn't been peace for thousands of years. Satan will use his influence to do that. So the first horse, uh, the white horse, is uh, the first seal being broken. That's the Antichrist. I hasten. Number two, notice the red horse. The red horse. The red horse is symbolic of war, breaking out among the nations. Look at verse 3. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and, unto they, uh, uh, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. So the second seal is God sending great wars on the earth. The third seal is a black horse, and this black horse is a picture of a famine and government seizure of food and distribution. Uh, government seizure of food and then the redistribution. Look at verse 5 of Revelation 6. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the uh, third beast say, Come and see, and I behold, beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice of, uh, in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny. Remember back then, a day's wage was a penny. So you don't need a whole day's wage to buy a way, uh, you need a whole day's worth of wage to buy one measure of wheat and three measures of barley for a penny and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. So uh, this third horse is representative of a world economy collapse. Uh, a quick study of history tells us that when a nation's economy collapses, the government runs in and it snatches up all the food and then it begins to ration it out to the people. Uh, so uh, uh, we know that by the midway point of the tribulation, people are so willing to take the mark of the beast because the one world government will have control of the money and the food of the world. Really, really quick, turn over to Revelation 13, verse 17. Revelation 13, verse 17, and we'll see how that people are willing to take the mark of the beast or the mark of the Antichrist. Look at verse 17. And that no man, uh, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So my opinion, and again this is my opinion, is that this mark of the Antichrist, uh, uh, other parts in Revelation tell us that it will either be on the, under, under or on the right hand or the forehead will most likely be some sort of computer chip and uh, they'll use that at that time to buy and sell and get gain and also be tracked uh, via GPS coordinates. But why are people going to be so willing to go get that mark? Because they're going to be starving to death. And the only way to get your food ration is to get that mark on your hand. Why? Because of the third uh, seal judgment or famine. Notice the fourth uh, seal judgment is uh, the pale horse. The pale horse, and that is death and hell. Re- hell. Revelation chapter 6, verse 7 and 8 says, And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And his name that sat on him was death, 
and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth. So one-fourth of the population is going to be killed. To kill with a sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. So here we see that the death will claim the body and hell will claim the soul. Hell will claim the soul. Number five, the fifth uh, seal judgment is the martyrs. The martyrs. Look with me at Revelation chapter 6 verse 9. The Bible says, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they had. By the way, that word martyr means testifier. Verse 10, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season unto their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were uh, should be fulfilled. So during the uh, tribulation, there's going to be people who get saved and they put, believe that Jesus is and was the Messiah. And during this time uh, of the uh, Antichrist where uh, uh, people won't take the mark, he's going to seek out those new uh, uh, converts of Christ and he's going to kill them, especially the ones that are boldly testifying for Jesus and their blood will cry out from the ground, much like Abel's did uh, back in Genesis and say, how long, O Lord, are you going to wait to avenge our spilled blood by the Antichrist? And these martyrs will spill their blood, much like the blood of the uh, animals was spilled beneath the altar in Leviticus and the blood of Jesus was spilled underneath the altar of Calvary and uh, 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 but Jesus is going to take their souls and he's going to clothe them with a white robe. Notice the sixth seal judgment is there, there's going to be a great earthquake. A great earthquake. Look at verse 12, chapter 6. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal. Who is he? It's the Lamb of God. And lo, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. And the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. And every mountain and island were moved out of, it, out, out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man uh, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? So God is going to send an earthquake. Jesus is going to send an earthquake at the opening of the sixth seal. That is going to be so bad that mountains are going to fall over. That islands are going to either be moved or disappear out of the sea. That's a severe earthquake. By the way, there's another earthquake toward the end of Revelation that's even worse than this one. This is a severe earthquake. And uh, 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 people are going to be killed because of this earthquake. And the rich and famous are going to go hide. And they're going to beg and, 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 and cry that God would spare them. And then the seventh seal is a great silence in heaven. A great silence in heaven. Look at Revelation chapter 8 in verse number 1. The Bible says, And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels, which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. 
And another angel came and stood near the altar, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which was given before the throne. So at the opening of the seventh seal, for 30 minutes in heaven, all of us are going to be deadly quiet. And at the end of that 30 minutes, seven trumpets are going to be given to seven angels. And those seven trumpets will begin the seven trumpet judgments. Each trumpet that's blown equals another uh, punishment on earth. So the seven seal judgments uh, open the seven trumpet judgments. The seven trumpet judgments, the seventh trumpet, opens up the seven vile or bold judgments. So we'll look at those another week. Now, interestingly enough, let me show you something really neat. Uh, this is for those of you that uh, are Bible nerds and you like to study this stuff in great depth like me. Okay. Um, Matthew chapter 24. Can you put that next slide up there for me? Okay, I can, uh, I can forward this to you if you'd like. But um, in Matthew 24, Jesus is asked about his kingdom. And Jesus, from verse 4 down through verse 13, describes his wrath on earth. Verses 4 and 5 talk about a false Christ. That matches up with Revelation 6, 1 and 2, the white horse rider. And then Jesus warns of wars in verse 6. Revelation 6, uh, verses 3 and 4 talk about the red horse of war. And then uh, verse 7 in Matthew 24, Jesus talks about famines that will come. The black horse in verses 5 and 6 of Revelation 6 is famine. Then you've got death, martyrs, worldwide chaos. Those match up perfectly with the events of Revelation 6. Revelation, uh, Matthew 24 is not talking about the rapture of the church. Matthew 24 is talking about the beginning of the great tribulation uh, that will happen on earth. Jesus there in Matthew 24 is describing his own wrath that will be poured out, poured out on the earth. Let me finish quickly with number three. Notice the witnesses of the Lamb. The witnesses of the Lamb. We said in the beginning of the service that Jesus is worthy. The Lamb is worthy of our worship. The Lamb is worthy to pour out His wrath on a God-hating, God-denying world. But the Lamb is worthy of our witness. Now listen. Can you all look up here at me once you get through writing it down? Worshiping is a lot easier than witnessing. I can say, we should worship Jesus. And every one of us would say, Amen. But then I could say, we should witness to others for Jesus. And if our actions dictate how we feel, we put our head down and we say, yeah, but not me. Not me. And then I say, yes, you. All of us. He's worthy of your witness. He hung on the cross, naked and alone, and became your sin. Once he rose from the dead, he looked at his disciples and he said, You go tell the world. And we say, but I'm embarrassed. I don't know how. He says, but I died naked on that cross for you. Why again is it that you can't? Is it because it's hot outside and you don't want to get out of the air conditioning? Oh, wait a minute. I was beaten with a cat of nine tails. I died and absorbed the wrath of God that was meant for you and me. You can't go because you got to go to your kid's soccer practice, or you can't go because you got to go to 
some 4-H club or some rotary club or you got to go hunting or fishing or you got a sporting event to attend? Wait a minute. What was your excuse again? Say, but pastor, I don't know how. You show up here and we'll teach you. But not knowing how is an excuse. You see, in the end times, during the tribulation, there are going to be witnesses. And their witness is going to be so strong that a revival like this world's never seen is going to break out. And then they're going to be killed for their witness. We don't get killed for our witness here. In between the sixth and seventh seal judgment, we find the greatest spiritual revival this world has ever known. Early, in, early on in this 70th week, or the seven-year tribulation, 144,000 Jews will realize that Jesus was, in their, was, was, was and is the promised Messiah. 12,000 of each tribe will confess Jesus Christ as their King and Savior. Uh, these, along with their converts, will be martyrs that are slain as part of the fifth seal judgment. Letter A, quickly here. Notice their seal. Their seal. Look at Revelation chapter 7, verse number 1. It says there, And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor the sea, nor uh, on, on any tree. What that means is they were asked to withhold judgment for just a moment. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, uh, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed in 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And for those that wonder whether or not those were actually Israelites, uh, it goes on and gives 12,000 of the various tribes. Now, ver- uh, uh, why were they sealed? What does that even mean? Now, you seal something that you own. So they were sealed because they were owned by God. Uh, the other thing I want to say quickly here is that it's very possible that the seal could be a way uh, for them to be able to identify each other. So they can see the seal in each other's foreheads, but if you're not part of that 144,000, you're not able to see the seal. Now that's speculation. I don't know if that's true or not, but it would make sense to me that they'd be able to identify each other by this seal that God has put on their forehead. And the other reason why they were sealed is that if you contained this seal, then you were spared from the wrath of God as it's being poured out on the earth. So uh, when you hear a Jehovah's Witness say, well, only 144,000 get to heaven, they take this number out of this passage, but that has nothing to do with that. These are 144,000 Jews... They get saved after the rapture, after the tribulation begins, and they go, oh, Jesus was the Messiah, and they believe. That's who the 144,000 are. Then those 144,000 take the gospel message around the globe to every single corner. Letter B, and lastly, notice, their souls saved. Their souls saved. Revelation 7 doesn't tell us that there will be preachers to the world. But Jesus did tell us this in Matthew twenty four fourteen. Let me read it for you. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then 
shall the end come. So the gospel is preached. Who's it preached by? What well, again? Revelation or Matthew twenty-four lines up perfectly with Revelation six. It has to be preached by these these hundred and forty-four thousand Jews. They go and they preach the gospel everywhere. Now look down at Revelation chapter seven, verse number nine. It says there, in this I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations. Notice that, all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white uh, robes and palms in their hands. Well, wait a minute. We read about the white robes. Who, who is wearing the white robes? The martyrs. So these are the Gentile martyrs that were led to the Lord by the Jewish uh, 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 converts that, that went all around the world and preached the gospel, and then they were killed because they wouldn't take the mark of the beast. And they went up to heaven, and God gave them a white robe. These are the martyrs in heaven who stood uh, for what was right and testified. Time does not allow me to read down through the end of the chapter, but it goes on and talks about how that these uh, were uh, those saints that died uh, for what was right. Let me just say this morning that the Lamb is worthy. He's worthy of your worship, isn't he? He's worthy of your witness. We have gospel tracts out in the lobby. You say, Pastor, I don't know how to tell someone to go to heaven. Can you give them a track and invite them to church? Can you say to your coworker, I'm a Christian? And not a Catholic one either. And I go to church. Can you come with me? Say, oh, Pastor, I will never hear the end of it. Are you going to get nailed to a tree? Aren't you glad that he did that for you? He wasn't ashamed for you. Don't you be ashamed of him. The old song says, stand for Jesus. He's standing by your side. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. How many here this morning say, Pastor Lejeune, one thing is for sure that in heaven, Revelation 5, 6, I'm going to be there because I have put my faith in Jesus. He suffered for me and I have, I have been redeemed through his suffering. Through his suffering, I am free. One day I'm going to heaven, not because of who I am, but because of who he is and what he did and my faith in that. If that's your testimony, would you just slip up your hand? Don't, don't be shy about it. Put it up there. Hold it up there a moment. Jesus died for me, and I believe in him. You can put your hands down. Is there one here today that says, Pastor, I don't know for sure I'm going to heaven. Would you please pray for me? I don't want to be on the wrong side of God's passion. I don't want to experience the wrath of the Lamb. I want to be there worshiping the Lamb. Pastor, would you please pray for me? I just don't know. I'm not certain. Is there one? Is there one? How many here today say, Pastor, either my worship or my witness is struggling? One or both of those needs to greatly improve. He is worthy, Pastor, but I'm not doing my part. Pastor, would you please pray for me? Here's my hand. Would you hold it up there just for a moment? I need to do a better job of either worshiping or witnessing for the Lamb. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. You spend time in worshiping Him this week. How many here say, Pastor, one day when we get to heaven... All my pain and problems are going to be gone, but right now they're not. When I have them and they're bad, Pastor, my heart is hurting and heavy 
Would you please pray for me as I endure this? If that's you, would you hold up your hand? Just hold them up for a minute. Let me see who you are. Let me pray for you. Lord, would you help those that are hurting to know your love, your care? And would you pour out your love on them even now? Help us, Lord, all to worship you, to witness for you. In Jesus' name. Let's stand to our feet. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, the altar's open. How about this morning, Christian? Are you going to commit to worship the Lamb of God? Are you going to commit to be worthy? Or are you going to commit to witness for Him? How many here today, if you don't know for sure you're going to heaven, one of our deacons is standing down front. He'd like to take the Bible and show you. If you're not, you've been saved, but you've not been baptized, we'd love to help you make that decision today been saved and baptized but you've not joined our church would like to help give you that information as well we have one coming for baptism are there others let's make decisions for the lord this morning